there's nothing wrong with going to a bar with a book if that's your thing. You know, I don't. I think we have a little bit of a stigma around that weird dude who's at his own booth in the corner. Well, you know what? I was about to say fuck you. Is that okay? No. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's up, cocktail fans? I'm coming to you today with a great summer cocktail. And maybe I shouldn't be saying a cocktail, but rather the cocktail. Because even if you're just getting into cocktails, if you haven't heard of this drink, I'm a little worried about where you've been for the past century or so. That's right. This episode is all about the legendary martini. And I want to give you the chance to make yourself one before we jump into this interview with Embitterment Bitters and Modern Bar Cart co-founder Ethan Hall. So if you want to do that, you're going to want to put two ounces of gin in a stirring pint with ice as well as half an ounce to an ounce of dry vermouth based on your flavor preferences and some orange or citrus bitters. Ideally orange, but if you don't have orange, maybe a grapefruit or a lemon bitters will do the trick. So you don't want to stir all that up or shake it if you're in a James Bond mood and then strain it into a chilled cocktail glass as cold as possible. Last but not least, you'll want to express a lemon peel garnish over the top and either leave that bad boy in the glass or discard it. Again, your preference. A little background here. Ethan and I grew up in the cocktail space practicing our drinks on one another. I think he makes a solid, solid martini, and I know you'll enjoy our banter and his insights. Not only do we cover the recipe nuances and variations on the martini, but we also delve into some of the historical and cultural forces that have cemented this cocktail as one of the crown jewels of the mixed drinks world. So, settle in, get those earbuds locked in their full upright position, and enjoy this boozy interview with my friend and yours, Ethan Hall. So we are sitting here in my apartment. It is early July. It's like 90 something degrees outside. It is a hot summer day and we are here to talk about the martini. Ethan Hall, thank you for being on the show. Great to be here. So before we jump in and talk about this amazing, amazing cocktail that every home bartender should know how to make, can you just take a moment and tell folks about yourself and maybe how we know each other? Sure. Um, I am the co-founder of Embitterment Bitters, the forebear to this podcast. I actually have known Eric for, we were just figuring this out, it's been just shy of a decade since we came together as friends. Uh, we went to Gettysburg College together and I recently relocated out of DC and was lucky enough to be able to visit Eric over the July 4th holiday. Yeah. So, uh, the martini, uh, all cocktails of course are very American. So I think it's, I think it's, uh, kind of appropriate that we're celebrating this truly American libation and, uh, 
Yeah, we, we were together on our freshman hall, so we've known each other for, for about 10 years, and we did improv together, we lived together for a few years, we moved down to D.C. together, and uh, after Embitterment Bitters, we just, when we decided to make the switch to Modern Bar Cart, um, we chose to uh, stick together as business partners, so you've got uh, kind of exclusive access this episode to another one of the minds behind our excellent company. So Ethan, one of the reasons why I wanted to sit down and talk to you about the martini is because in my opinion, you make one of the best martinis I've ever had. Well, that's great. Um, you know, I think that, you know, just to get in on the American spirit of doing a quintessential cocktail like the martini, you know, this really is a spirits melting pot. Um, in the best possible way, American culture does tend to pull in things from other drinking traditions. Now, the great thing about the martini is it's so flexible that you could have anything from Italian vermouth to French vermouth, French gin, French vodka, Russian vodka, London dry gin, you know, the the possibilities are kind of endless, and especially with the recent movement for Americans especially to do more foraging-type gins with their uh, native herbs, we really see this coming full circle and having its own national identity, finally, as a drink. Yeah, and I think one of the things about the martini, and we'll, we'll, get in, we'll get into the exact definition, or you know, by definition we really mean recipe here, of the martini, uh, even though it's a controversial one, but... First, you know, like I, I, I agree, I think that right now is a great time to be not only a gin drinker, but a martini drinker because we have all these wonderful, you know, new gins coming out. And I think when the cocktail renaissance first exploded, people started getting excited about some of the more obscure stuff. They kind of dove deep right away and, and that left the martini sort of in the lurch a little bit. And I think uh, it, this is a really good opportunity for us to come back and give it the attention it really deserves. So um, let's do just that. Can you uh, tell our listeners what in your opinion, is the quintessential martini recipe? Sure. You know, for me, the martini is all about gin. Gin is your base spirit. I like to go with a London Dry or, you know, some of my other favorites are Citadel uh, French Gin, that's particularly great, or the Dry Rye St. George Gin from California. What I typically think of when I'm making a martini is your cold as possible, dry martini that you're having before dinner. Um, what that really is to me is two parts, maybe two and a half parts of gin, depending on how much you like the taste of your spirit, to one part of dry vermouth. My go-to is usually Dolan and a nice heavy dose of orange bitters. While you're mixing this, your martini glass, or in most cases, I'll do a coupe glass. I actually got a nice set, very reasonable, uh, from Amazon.com, just some Libby coupe glasses, your standard run-of-the-mill. Um, keep one of those in the freezer. Stir your martini until you're frosting the outside of your mixing pint. Strain it into that coupe glass and immediately express a lemon twist over it. And in my mind, I think it's better to leave the lemon twist in there and let that develop and uh, bring some of the flavor into it throughout the drinking experience. Yeah, nice. Uh, so just to uh, zoom in on a couple things there. So when you say two parts, uh, really a part when you're talking about a cocktail is uh, any unit of measurement 
it, it, it's a, a way of kind of democratizing the cocktail recipe across different measurement systems. So there's the metric measurement system that works in usually centiliters. There's the um, American one that works with ounces. And then there's, um, you know, uh, certain other measurement systems as well. So the way that when we're talking about cocktails, we keep this consistent as we talk about parts. Really what we're doing is we're uh, talking about a ratio. So usually you use ounces, right? Yeah, I, um, I'm really thinking about this in terms of the jiggers that I keep on my home bar. Um, I have a one half and one ounce jigger and a two ounce, one ounce jigger. Um, really, I think that the perfect size for your cocktail to not get you a little bit too effed up is to go about two ounces of your hard liquor. Um, you got a pretty substantial drink up there and I know there's a temptation. I don't know who these martini glasses are being made for. Almost every set of martini glasses I've owned, just to editorialize, seem to encourage excess consumption of alcohol. Um, you look at these and I've tried to fill them. Um, an old roommate and I, I'll, I'll tell you that in my youth, um, we would attempt to make our martinis to the size of our martini glasses, which meant that we were having somewhere between eight and 10 ounce drink at those ratios. So you can imagine uh, how great that was for us. Um, I, let's just say as I've gotten older and as I've actually developed a capacity to have a hangover, there, there's no way I'm going to be doing that anymore. So it, it's important to know it's okay to have space at the top of your glass or go and seek out some really reasonably sized ones that are a two to three ounce volume uh, that really, you know, they do look beautiful when they're filled perfectly to the top. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's that's something that we talked about in our glassware episode uh, with Andy Whitehead from Liquorary and uh, also something we kind of hit on in our um alcohol and the body episode with uh, Colleen O'Brien from Wild Roots Apothecary. So uh, the martini obviously is notorious for being sort of a potent uh, cocktail and that's something that we love about it. All of the classic cocktails out there, the, especially the big three, the, the martini, the old fashioned, the Manhattan, they're, they're sort of notorious for being fairly boozy. And I think we can get into it at some point in this episode uh, about, you know, whether, you know, whether, when we talk about some of the, the ratios and the recipes for the variations, you know, which are the more boozy ones and which are the ones that are maybe letting some of the other possible ingredients uh, strut their stuff a bit. But um, so the martini generally is a two to one, uh, but it, there's a there's an interesting little hack that you can do if um, you are in a restaurant, let's say. So uh, personally, when I make a martini, I make one with a ratio of four to one spirit to vermouth. And, and again, so the what we're using here is gin in a traditional martini, although you can also use vodka and make it a vodka martini very easily. You're gonna use two ounces of gin and for me, I always specify a half ounce of dry vermouth when I'm ordering mine at the restaurant. Now this is, to me, it's straddling that zone right between the dry martini, which is pretty much as little vermouth as possible, and the quote unquote wet martini, which is the one that you described. So the classic martini is the wet martini, uh, in that it has a ratio of two ounces of gin to one ounce of dry vermouth. Um, but uh, there's a lot of sayings out there, uh, you know, Winston Churchill, Ernest Hemingway, these are guys, you know, who have sort of iconic quotes about, you know, having a bottle of vermouth in the room is good enough for your martini, you know? Yeah, 
you know, I think this is really where the martini is nice because it is an individualistic cocktail. You're getting opportunities to express what you want as a drinker. And this is a great opportunity to experiment. I didn't always love vermouth. It's something that now I appreciate as part of my drink almost as much as the gin itself. Some people love gin. Um, although I've been in some situations with those ultra dry martinis uh, where you're dealing with something that when it comes out of the shaker tin, you're dealing with a three ounce glass of gin um, served to you up. And that's uh, that's a bit aggressive. Um, I'm not here to caution everyone against getting too drunk. Like it's it's a drink. You can handle it responsibly. I know that's the point of this podcast, but um, it, there is something to be said for having something balanced that isn't going to overwhelm your palate. Right. And there are things when, when you're thinking about the things that go into a cocktail, you know, normally we think about tastes, we think about flavors, we think about aromas. These are these are all things we discussed with Professor Dan McCall in the uh, the episode where we discuss kind of the uh, physiology and psychology of, of flavor. But other things that we don't always think about as contributing to the overall experience of the cocktail, things like alcohol burn, they're things like temperature. So the martini really is uh, a great playground for for that, and if you know, I think I think what Ethan's saying right now, and I think this is a great tip for people, is that if you want to be able to savor some of those other flavors that are present in your martini, whether that those flavors are being contributed by the particular gin you're using or the particular vermouth, it's great not to be able to have to battle that super crazy alcohol burn because what that's gonna do is it's gonna kind of cloud the judgment of your taste buds and make it a little bit more hard to discern what kind of flavors you've got going on there. Yeah, at the same time, I will say you get all those images historically of the Mad Men guys drinking their martinis around lunch. Uh, one of my favorite things to do with guests, if I want to put on a little classy, uh, a little classy gig, is to make a whole pitcher of martinis, and we'll have at that over the course of well that part that pitcher of martinis. How do you uh, chill that without super diluting it, or is the dilution that takes place in the pitcher part of the experience? Uh, so what I like to do there is my glassware is pretty thick, uh, especially the pitcher. I throw that guy in the freezer, you know, a couple hours before I'm even making this. I do the mixing in the pitcher, and I try to use my biggest ice chunks possible. There is a little bit of dilution that occurs through the course of drinking it, but by the time you get to your second one, I think it is important to get a little bit more water into you and you get to see a little bit of the evolution of the flavor of this. Um, the other thing I like to do is, in this case, keep a couple dishes on the side, maybe one uh, with some lemon twists and another with some olives. This is where it really comes into personal preference. Yeah, no, that's that's a great idea. And um, we'll talk just a second here when we talk about some of the martini variations of, you know, what to call a particular martini when you're putting a particular garnish or accompaniment with it. So there's there's some traditional names for those that are that are good to know. But I think we kind of got in pretty deep pretty fast here. Um, so what I'd like to do for our listeners is step back. You know, we've got the definition of the martini basically. Uh, we've got the two to one, but, but where does that come from? Do we do we have any uh, indication of when the martini kind of showed up? So my understanding is that it actually may have been an evolution of the Manhattan. Um, the evolution, though, you know, the, you're thinking, how is this possible because the ingredients are a little bit far off, uh, was more likely the Martinez first. And it was at the 
El Dorado Bar uh, off of San Francisco, where we think the Martinez first uh, first emerged. Right. Uh, so this is back in the 1800s, and, and to the best of my ability to you know understand the the cultural and for better for lack of a better term liquory things that were going on back then, uh, this is when cocktails started to really emerge in their current form. You know, uh, going from things like toddies and punches uh, and turning into actual cocktails as we would understand them today, kind of evolving from the uh, Neanderthal into the, you know, fully functioning cocktail. And the interesting thing is that back then there were different spirits available to people. And so when these bars started popping up in these uh, metropolitan centers like San Francisco, which at that point was uh, either experiencing or had been developed by the gold rush or New York, which was, has always been one of our biggest cities or some of the other large cities across what then was our country, these bartenders didn't have the same access to certain spirits like we do today. So one of those spirits that they didn't have access to until the late 1800s was gin as we know it today. We, we mostly, when we think of gin, think of London dry gin, which is that clear, junipery, uh, citrusy kind of gin. What they had access to was what was called Old Tom gin or Dutch gin, kind of like a, a Holland-style gin, which was imported straight from the Netherlands. And... Uh, this made a very different drink. And so the Martinez was a gin-based drink that was based off of the Manhattan using this Dutch-style gin. So we've got the Manhattan, which interestingly enough has the same ratio of ingredients as the current martini does, a two to one, two ounces of spirit to one ounce of vermouth. In, in the case of the Manhattan, it's sweet vermouth. And then uh, based on what we can tell, what happened was uh, the Martinez was invented uh, in the El Dorado by uh, the professor, Jerry Thomas, who was one of the most prolific bartenders at that time and ended up in one of his cocktail books. He was one of the first anthologizers of cocktail recipes. From there, it's a little bit hard to figure out where the martini sprang up, but one of the things that we can do is we can understand how importation of different spirits changed at that time. So at a little after the Martinez showed up, what we have is a spike in the importation of London dry gin and a plummet in the importation of the Dutch style gin. In addition, dry vermouth started coming over from France and that began to be a popular cocktail ingredient. And so what we see there is perfect conditions for the martini to evolve. Yeah, it's uh, interesting because now we're at the point where drinking is really getting to be more of an industrial activity. Um, we had, you know, the idea of the frontier spirit. You've got your hard cider, you've got your bourbon, you've got your rye. And now these things are moving into the city but so are the things from other countries, for lack of a better way of saying it. You know, these spirits are widely available because America is becoming an import-export hub. Right. And so in, in, in this way, I think that the martini stands with one leg in two very different eras of American history. It is sort of one of these bridging cocktails between the old American cocktail, like, like you were saying, the frontier style cocktail, and sort of the new generation of cocktails that really defined pre-prohibition era cocktails. And I think for that, 
we owe it a great debt of gratitude because those are some of the most amazing cocktails out there. But it's, I, th I think that's also one of the reasons why the martini had so much staying power in that era is because when you got to the Roaring Twenties, the martini had already been around for 40 years. People understood this as a really well-established cocktail. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why even after Prohibition, when some of these newer cocktails back then sort of dropped out into obscurity, the martini stayed around and we had it for our Mad Men years and our 70s and 80s and 90s. It, it, it's always been around. And, you know, to be the American history speculator, so feel free to write in and correct me on all of this, but, you know, the 1920s and before were really a time of intense culture wars in the United States. The urban versus rural, northern versus southern divide was becoming pretty apparent. And so at this time, you see that rural evangelicals were moving in the direction of the temperance movement. We did see that the cities in the north did have some of this activity, but before prohibition hit, there were already more dry counties outside of the main northern cities. And so the cocktail culture really had some time to only evolve in these hubs like San Francisco and New York, the godless havens that we all really enjoy living in. And that allowed it to, again, stick around. And it took a very long time for us to, you know, redevelop that love. And it's kind of unfortunate of our rye and our cider and our punches. Yeah. I think now there's a lot of uh, focus on, you know, spirits like rye, um, which is, again, it's, it's, this is a great opportunity for us to pause, step back and reflect on the martini. So we've talked about the history. We've talked about the uh, traditional martini recipe. Now let's talk a little bit about some martini variants that people might want to be familiar with. Why don't we just kind of go back and forth on these until we run out of ideas? Sure. So first there's one of uh, the more interesting garnish variants called the Gibson, which uses a cocktail onion in lieu of your olive or your lemon twist. Yeah, and that would be definitely a more savory variant of it with, with that onion, cocktail onions are definitely not everybody's cup of tea. So, uh, I mean, I've had one before, it's good. It's not my taste preference, but I, I can definitely appreciate it as a savory option. Yeah, and um, to go off of that uh, name of the cocktail, just to do a little quick local DC plug, you know, I, I really love to mention the Gibson, which was one of our earlier speakeasies to come about in the last uh, couple of decades to um, really start kicking off this, you know, rebirth of the cocktail spirit. They're still around. They're still Still doing great work all these years later um, and I know that they've done a lot to pollinate the other bars with their former employees going and working elsewhere yeah and where in DC is that um, that's around U Street right yeah so it's kind of uh, up north north of downtown if you, if you need to locate it but um, so another variation would be the Vesper which is kind of a controversial recipe in, in some respects. We, when we were doing a, a little bit of casual research for this episode, uh, we looked up some recipes for the Vesper and we found uh, ratios ranging from three to two to one, gin to vodka to dry vermouth, uh, all the way up to eight to two to one, gin to vodka to vermouth with some of those larger ratio cocktails ending up around the five ounce mark. So going back to what you were saying earlier about those, you know, the size of the glass and the, and the potency of 
the cocktail, I, I think that there definitely is a trend toward maybe making cocktails just slightly too boozy here. And that's definitely opinion on my part. But uh, the other thing about the Vesper is, is that this is the traditional James Bond martini, quote unquote. And one of the things about the martini is that it's generally accepted when you're making a good classic gin martini, you are not shaking that, correct? Right. Uh, the idea is, and this kind of gets into some of the controversy around James Bond uh, with the shaken, not stirred line. Uh, you know, if you ask most bartenders uh, in the cocktail bars around the city, they'll sort of cringe at that idea. Um, but, you know, to each their own. I've had plenty of martinis not at cocktail bars, so I don't have to call anyone out, um, that have been shaken, and I still thought they were delightful. You will see less clarity in your drink, uh, maybe some small ice chips floating in there. I also wanted to point out with the Vesper that this is where you start seeing the actual non-spirit portion of this um, called out by name, or in, what I really mean by that is um, in the book Casino Royale, James Bond calls for Lille Blanc by name. I've seen other variations using uh, Cocchi Americano and some other things, but um, as far as I know, it's pretty well accepted that Lille Blanc is your um, is your vermouth of choice in this case. Right, and I believe that uh, he refers to it as Kaina Lille. Uh, I think that's another another way to refer to Lille Blanc. It's it's essentially the same. It's it's the it's the same mixer as far as I understand. So it's this uh, it's basically a slightly stronger dry vermouth and slightly sweeter, right? Uh, that's how I, that's how I would call it. Right. So, uh, getting back to the Vesper recipe, uh, again, this, this is kind of subjective, but the way I personally make it is I, I make it with an ounce and a half of gin, an ounce of vodka. And here again, it, uh, it doesn't really matter what kind of vodka you use. As long as it doesn't come out of a plastic bottle, then generally you're going to be getting decent mixing quality vodka. And then a half ounce of kind of Lille, Lille Blanc, or what I use is actually a white vermouth, a Blanc vermouth. Uh, I, I personally enjoy Dolan Blanc, but a lot of other brands of vermouth have been coming out with white vermouths. This is a vermouth strength, uh, but it's a little bit sweeter than a dry vermouth. And I think what it does is it complements the other things that uh, I like to put in there, namely the lavender bitters I like to use. Now, the Vespa recipe doesn't call for lavender bitters, but when I make it, I really enjoy the embitterment lavender bitters, especially when it's super hot out like it is today. So that's what I put in there with the three to two to one gin to vodka to white vermouth. So speaking of Ethan, do you want to run over and grab the martinis we mixed up and chilled down so that we can maybe give some tasting notes? Sure thing. All right. So while Ethan runs over and um, gets some of those cocktails ready for us. Uh, I'll take this time to mention that if you want to get in touch with us, you can always uh, snap a picture of your martini, your favorite variation of the martini, and you can tag at Modern Bar Cart on Instagram. And we would love to uh, get into the nitpicky details of how you think the martini is best made, because for better or for worse, this is a really controversial topic. People have really strong feelings about their martinis, and I think that's great. I think it's such an important drink to uh, the American cocktail culture that you should have a strong opinion about it, but you should also be curious enough to go out of your way and try some of these other variants and to listen to how other people 
tend to make their cocktails. So we got Ethan back here with these amazing looking drinks and do a little clink. Cheers. Mm. Very, very nice. So these are pretty great. What I want to throw in there is another martini variant we haven't really touched on. I think it's one of the more popular ones. I certainly went through a phase with them is the dirty martini. Um, you know, I've seen variations on this that just go from, you know, making your normal martini, adding whatever your superstition is on the number of olives. I never quite got that, but it's either odd numbers or even numbers, or it's a single olive. Maybe it's the ones with jalapenos or blue cheese that are bad or good luck. Um, I've also, uh, you know, sadly, you know, I'm, I would pour a little of this martini out in honor of them, but it's way too good. Uh, Domku up in Petworth, uh, a recently closed joint, had this amazing pickled herring martini using vodka. And I'll also just make a call out to, um, I was out in Nashville with someone who ordered a pickle martini and the bartenders were gracious enough to run across the street to the other restaurant to go find a pickle for her. And I got to say, one, we tipped heavily on that level of service. So shout out to those guys. And secondly, it was delicious. Pickle juice is a great recovery thing for workouts and hangovers. So maybe we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves there. Right. Yeah. Nothing like some preemptive electrolytes. But I think it's interesting to experiment with martinis because there's such a blank slate. Yes, you're using gin. Um, you know, of course, you can always sub out gin for vodka if you're making your classic uh, martini and just call it your classic vodka martini. But gin and vodka are great blank slates when it comes to experimenting. So these savory ingredients like the pickled herring, the pickle itself, olives stuffed with weird stuff. Those are really interesting things to throw in there to help yourself and possibly your guests understand just the range of flavors that you can experience by making just a subtle tweak. Uh, another great way to do that is by changing the bitters you use. So as I was mentioning, um, you know, in my Vesper, I like to use lavender bitters. I've, I've tried all different flavors in there and I find that the lavender bitters is just particularly good with that white vermouth that I use. So anything else you want to communicate to our listeners about Martinis, is there any hacks that you want to let them in on or any advice you want to give uh, if there was somebody out there who wanted to go out and start experimenting, particularly in the martini world? Yeah, so here is just a quick rundown of things that I've noticed. One thing is if you're going to be using heavy garnishes, instead of putting your olives in your martini, put a dish of olives out with a little bit of gin in it because olives are going to bring up the temperature of your drink. Um, that's really subjective. I just think that a martini should be as cold as humanly possible, um, which comes down to chilling glassware, as I mentioned before. Um, the other things that I would recommend in terms of purchasing is get a good dry vermouth and keep it in the fridge. Keep it in the damn fridge. Vermouth gets really nasty when it gets warm and you're not really going to be able to cover that fact up. So I've uh, definitely as a rookie in my younger days made many a bad martini doing that. Um, I actually you know, got schooled on, on martinis from some people very, uh, very dear to me. My uncles who are excellent home entertainers and so many times when having dinner with them, we would start with a round of martinis that either they made or we would get it at a restaurant. In those cases, and this is something, not even throwing them on, under the bus on this, you'd be surprised at the 
quality of a drink you can get out of the gin you have around or the gin you can't afford. I would always recommend go with the best ingredients you can afford, but I've also had some incredible martinis using things like Seagram's Gin or my favorite on the budget end of things, New Amsterdam. So don't be a pretentious person about this if you don't want to. Um, I'm personally right now drinking The Botanist and it is really good. So if you've got the means, go get it. Um, but don't feel shy and don't feel like you need to use economics as your barrier to entry if you're looking to experiment. I know Eric goes on and uh, at length in his building your bar out uh, software episode. So definitely check that out because he's got excellent recommendations at all price points. Yeah, I try to anyway. Um, there's there's certainly a, a whole host of, of great cocktail spirits out there, but uh, that's a good, a good place to start uh, for widely available options. One thing you just did there was call out some ingredients and I to totally slipped my mind too. So can you tell us exactly what is in your martini right now that you're sipping on? Sure. So Eric and I uh, made these up with a dry vermouth called Vaya, V-Y-A. It's a little bit more herbal than your typical dry uh, vermouth that you'll see, like uh, Martini and Rossi, which I think is kind of the standard, every liquor store's got it, mar Martini, uh, or uh, rather, vermouth. The botanist gin, embittermint orange bitters, and a lemon, I believe, procured from Costco, produced the lemon peel. Yes, uh, they... They have cheap lemons there. So good, good oily lemon peel floating in that martini. And I'm drinking the Vesper and I actually stirred this Vesper instead of shaking it. So I was recently in a cocktail bar and I was talking to the bartender about how I enjoy my Vespers particularly because when you shake them, they get nice and nice and cold. You get those ice chips in there that, that rapidly cool down the ingredients and give you this super, super frosty drink. Uh, and this bartender was was sort of appalled when uh, when she heard that. She's like, "Yo, you don't shake a vesper; you only stir it." And so it kind of just goes to you know one thing is it goes to show that even with sort of accepted recipes and techniques, there's always different takes on them. So feel free to experiment with shaking versus stirring as well with these with these drinks. But uh, the other thing I will point out is that we have them in two different glasses here. Now Ethan has his in a coupe glass. And I have mine in a high martini glass. If you want to see a picture of this martini glass, go ahead to the uh, glassware episode and check out the show notes there. I like this because it has less of a spillage liability than some of the more Art Deco wide flat style martini glasses. And the gin that I'm using here is McClintock Gin. Uh, the Forager is the name of it. And it's a really nice floral style gin. I think it goes really well with the white vermouth by Dolan. And I as well have garnished mine with a lemon peel that is currently chilling in the glass. Uh, a lot of bartenders out there uh, have the belief that it's better and cleaner to serve up the drink without the lemon peel. And there is, to be honest, there's sort of a, a very straight up beauty of having just a glass full of clear liquid. But I think that as the lemon peel is chilling there in the drink, it has the opportunity to leach a little bit more flavor into that. And what that does is it allows you to have a gin that doesn't rely so much on citrus, but still get that nice citrusy quality to the cocktail. So it gives you a little bit more power to leave it in the drink in my opinion, but it's a total matter of preference. So I think that kind of wraps up the quick and dirty what you need to know about martinis. But Ethan, I want to get to a couple of lightning round questions here, if that's okay. Sure. 
All right, so these are questions that we ask all of our guests. They're gonna be quick, but your answers don't have to be. First one, as always, is we're drinking martinis. Doesn't have to be the answer here, but what is your favorite cocktail? And if you can't name a favorite of, of all time, what's a cocktail you've recently fallen in love with? Okay, so I'm going to two-part this. Uh, a cocktail that I'm particularly obsessed with right now, or I actually am about to become obsessed with again, it's funny, it took me exactly a year to get back on this wagon, was something that um, Eric taught me about. It's the Corpse Survivor. Forget which number this one is, but I will rattle off the recipe really quick for you. Um, it is an amazing drink in hot, in hot, sultry weather, which is why it's unsurprising that it was invented in New Orleans. I typically will do an ounce and a half of dry gin, about a quarter ounce of Cointreau. That's my go-to orange liqueur. I know there are plenty of great ones out there. I rinse a glass with absinthe, and I forgot to mention, I'm also adding about an ounce of Blanc Vermouth into the shaker um, with the juice of a little bit less than half a lemon. I'd say about a half ounce of lemon juice. Meanwhile, I'm coating the inside of a cocktail glass with some absinthe, which I think I already mentioned. Yep. I'm That's okay. Absinthe is great. Mention it twice. Good point. Always mention absinthe as many times as you want. <laughs> All right, so after you've done your absinthe rinse, straight, shake your cocktail until you get frost around the glass, strain it into the into said cocktail glass and enjoy. I will typically garnish with a lemon twist. Uh, I garnish almost everything with a lemon twist. I just think lemon oil is delicious, um, but there are a lot of options there. Right. Yeah, the Cork Survivor is definitely an exceptional cocktail. I think it's it's uh, already came, it's already come up as as other folks favorite cocktail on this podcast. Interestingly enough, I think Braden from McClintock also likes it and they he really enjoys it with their gin, which I don't doubt is delicious, but uh, another thing I will point out about the Corpse Survivor is that when it's super hot out, one of the things that doesn't detract from it, if you want to use maybe slightly lower quality ingredients, if you want to sub out your you know, nice gin for maybe a base gin, if you want to sub out your Cointreau for maybe triple sec, that's a little bit more affordable. And if after you shake that bad boy up, you want to top it off with a can of seltzer and enjoy it out of a big old highball glass, I find that to be a super refreshing way to enjoy all the flavors complete with absinthe of a core survivor while simultaneously kind of hydrating because it's a really good drink, really refreshing, but can also kind of knock you over if you're sitting there sweating on the porch as well. So I, I, I like the Corpse Survivor Spritz, I call it, for that reason. Yep, and I'm gonna throw in one more recipe because I don't think it's fair to say I will get obsessed with something. My favorite cocktail, hands down, I'm gonna give another nod to my Uncle John, is the Rob Roy. Now this is, again, one of your martini Manhattan kind of variants. Uh, you're going to use, I do mine perfect. Uh, perfect in the world of martinis and Manhattans means half dry and half sweet vermouth. Um, or a one-to-one -one ratio. Exactly. And I will go with two ounces of, you know, this is the best part about this cocktail in particular, in my opinion, is you can go very nice, I would say you're not really getting anything out of that past about 30 bucks a bottle. So I like monkey shoulder, a blended scotch, um, pig's nose is another good one, or even, you know, I'll admit Johnny Walker Red. Not great for sipping, great for cocktails. A Dolan sweet vermouth and a Dolan dry vermouth, a half ounce of each. Uh, embitterment aromatic bitters, stir that. 
and then serve it up in a cocktail glass with my preference is a lemon twist. I think it just brings something out in the scotch or I've even done a grapefruit twist, which is pretty, pretty rad. Yeah, I love I love doing different citrus twists with scotch than you would with other whiskey drinks in particular i think with bourbon and rye the orange twist is a really really important flavor note but then with scotch scotch has sort of like that deep dark uh flavor profile that instead of benefiting from the complement of the orange oil actually benefits potentially more from the lift of the lemon or the grapefruit so yeah that's really really good advice and uh you know people should definitely experiment with the rob roy i don't think that's come up yet on this podcast but uh, we'll definitely uh, try and zoom in a little bit more on some of these scotch cocktails, especially as it gets cooler out. Like like we said, it's July here in Washington and D.C., so scotch is not the first spirit on our minds, but it is near and dear to our hearts nonetheless. So that being said, we got your favorite cocktail. What is your favorite spirit? What do you like about it? All right, so Desert Island, I'm going to go with a bourbon or a rye. Uh, I'll tell you about a rye that uh, I really enjoyed. And that was from the Sagamore Distillery up in Baltimore. We had the pleasure of visiting there and doing a tasting. Um, their standard Maryland rye is excellent on its own, maybe with a little bit of water or a rock. My favorite for mixing is going to be gin. I think that gin, not just because we're drinking martinis, but gin is the best thing, the most versatile to turn into just about any cocktail from your Martinez, which is deep, dark, and mysterious, very complex to your delicious, delicious Negronis that you should drink all summer up to your martinis. Or even, I know this is a big thing that it, it's a bit divisive, but I know our friends over at Speaking Easy love doing gin old fashions. I'm starting to see the value in that because it gives you a little bit of a, an upgrade from the classic, you know, pink gin style of drinking your, uh, your favorite spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Uh, I, I agree with you that, that I think if I'm going to have to sip something, it would probably be, uh, you know, a nice rye and that if, you know, for mixing a uh, gin is gin is definitely King. Uh, gin is, uh, one of my, one of my great, great loves in this world. So speaking of mixing, if you could mix up a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would that person be? Where would you go? What beverage would you consume together? And, uh, you know, just what, what would you guys t- talk about? Well, Eric has known me for about 10 years, and my obvious answer to almost all of these things is David Bowie. However, I recently learned that David Bowie wasn't really into any of the drugs or mind-altering substances that you would classify as depressants. He uh, reportedly hated hallucinogens, hated smoking weed, didn't like to drink, and really liked to go in the opposite direction. I'll just leave it at that. Um, However, I don't want him to be out of the equation, so I'm again going to break your rules and go double. Um, David Bowie would be sitting there maybe watching us uh, milling about, um, but I would actually choose the artist Keith Haring. Now, if you're not familiar with Keith Haring, he was a very a very influential part of the pop art movement during the 1980s. He actually grew up in my hometown of Kutztown, Pennsylvania, um, went, went off, befriended Andy Warhol, and after starting as a graffiti artist, actually for a very short period, really took the art world over, at least in the pop art scene in New York. Now, the sadder, more tragic part of this is that Keith actually died of HIV AIDS in 1989. So his career was very short lived. Um, What I really love about him and David Bowie in particular is that their 
excellent icons in terms of pushing limits, being on the cutting edge of their fields, constantly innovating, and also making it okay to be weird. Uh, I think there's something to be said about that. Um, and the bar that we would be in, uh, this is going to be a fictional one, is we would be in Moe's Tavern from The Simpsons. I think that Moe's kind of embodies my ultimate dive bar scenario. You've got the slightly surly but good-hearted bartender. You have a cast of regulars and a ton of really interesting stories about it. Um, if we have to delve back into the real world, though, I'm going to be kind of a pretentious worldly person and say there is a particular bar in the Odeon Hotel in Cairo, Egypt, uh, that I got to know really well when I uh, studied there um, many years ago. Um, the reason I liked it is because it was a pretty dingy, old-school, rundown hotel, and they had a rooftop bar that um, was overrun by Westerners and Egyptian hipsters and people drinking very large um, liters, liter bottles of beer at all hours. Now, the reason I chose this is because those bars in that country are particularly um, fond of chain smoking cigarettes. And we want something for David Bowie. He's going to get bored because he's going to be watching me and Keith pound back our drinks, which I would go with either, you know, it's very hot there and you're not necessarily going to have access to the greatest ingredients. So I think vodka sodas are a good way to go when you just kind of want to keep up with the scene, but you know that you're not going to have a lot of good options. So, you know, as Keith Herring and I are kind of uh, waxing about, you know, the weirdness of the world, maybe he's, you know, thinking about where he's going to plan a, a mural. You know, he was fairly politically active, not so, not as much as say a Banksy um, or an Ai Weiwei, but more in causes that he really cared about, like the AIDS epidemic and um, you know nuclear proliferation. So he might be planning some kind of guerrilla art piece in Cairo. Um, meanwhile, Bowie has somehow made his way over to the DJ booth or is behind the bar and charming the hell out of everyone. Um, at this point in time, I think because it's hot out, someone managed to smuggle through duty-free a bottle of Campari and we switched up to Campari sodas, which is one of my go-tos. Again, we're going really simple. I I love cocktails, but you know, my favorite bars aren't always the ones where you want to be ordering a cocktail. So let's keep it simple. So just so everyone understands, uh, Ethan had like a three hour drive today and I told, I texted him ahead of time. I said, all right, he, you know, you're, I'm going to ask you these questions. So, you, you know, you should, you should probably, you know, at least think about your answer, especially for the, for the one where I ask you, you know, if you could, you know, have a cocktail with anyone past, present, whatever. I don't think I've ever heard a monologue like that on this podcast. Jeez, man, that that's in. So you're having you're having a cocktail with David Bowie and what's the other guy's name? Keith Herring. And Keith Herring at the top of the Odeon Hotel in Cairo, or in an alternate reality in Moe's Tavern in Springfield. Right. Okay. That's probably the most intense answer to that question I've ever gotten. Uh, <laughs> I, I told you I was going to think about that and, you know, I, I didn't want to cop out and just say Bowie, but seriously, would you not want to see what Bowie does behind a DJ booth in a bar in the Middle East? I feel like I feel like the movie Cocktail starring Tom Cruise, if we switched out Tom Cruise with David Bowie, it would have been a much better movie. Um, it would have been much scarier. Yeah. Well, that's okay. It would have been better. So, all right. Let's get to a couple pieces of advice or recommendations from you. Are there any books about cocktails or spirits or bartender, whatever, any books uh, that you would particularly recommend for people who are getting into home bartending? Yep. So some of my favorites are, I think you've probably gotten a slate of people coming through here telling you about the drunken botanist, which I think is just cool. 
it may not be helpful for home bartending as much as it is for um, learning how some of your spirits are made, as well as imbibe. Um, one that I'll throw out there that I don't think has been brought up on the show is Bitters, A Spirited History by Bradley Thomas Parsons. He's a, been, he was one of the early experts on uh, cocktail bitters. He provides a lot of input, and I'm not trying to undercut my own business. Um, he does give you some ideas on how to make your own, but you're also gonna see how, even though he lays it out very simply, it's incredibly difficult to make these things right. Yeah, bitters bitters are a complex complex beast. We, uh, you know, when we when we make them, uh, we are constantly learning things. If we try and make a slight tweak here or a slight tweak there, almost every time it results in some new nugget of information about how bitters extract, how different substances work together. So yeah, it's 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 a uh, I, I can I can vouch for that book is a really high quality read. So we'll definitely stick that in the show notes. Yep. And I just want to add one other piece that he really does a good job explaining why bitters are critical for your cocktails and a must have on your bar. I think they do get overlooked less so now, but it's, it's, it's really important. Get a bottle of bitters. I don't care whose bitters really make sure it's on your bar. It opens up your ability to make a cocktail. that's going to stand out and impress your friends. Sure. And it's, and it's understated, which I think is one, one of the more important things. It's not super over the top. It's, it's not going to ruin a drink in most circumstances, unless you're like slamming a bunch of celery bitters into a whiskey drink or something. But, um, yeah, definitely get a bottle of bitters, experiment with BT Parsons book. And the last thing here before we get, uh, into how to contact you would be if you could give any piece of advice to someone who is just starting out learning about cocktails and home bartending. What advice do you have for them? Don't be afraid to ask questions when you're at a bar, as long as it's not completely loud. Make sure it's the right bar. Now, I'm not telling you to go to a college bar and start asking the opinions of the guy pouring, you know, dollar gin and tonics. Uh, But if you're at a quiet bar that you like in your neighborhood and it seems to be, you know, relatively calm... I'd strike up a conversation um, and ask really detailed and honest questions. Um, One of my favorite things to ask people is what the go-to liquors they have on their bar that aren't very expensive are. Because again, I always talk about, it's about getting the best you can afford or the, you know, the spirit that is going to, you know, meet the need at the time. And one of the more common answers that I get is Old Overholt Rye. Um, I'm not trying to do product endorsements, but these people will often tell you, you know, what is the secret $20 bottle that you should be buying so that you don't look like the idiot who wasted a bunch of money on something that was finished in a sherry cask that was blessed by Pope John Paul II and Michael Jackson moonwalked across. That'd be an amazing cask. I would actually, I would, I would, I'd be interested in, in what that cask would go for on the market. But uh, yeah, uh, well, well put advice. Bartenders are a great knowledge resource, and we should absolutely be utilizing their expertise as much as possible. When you get that gut feeling that it's just like, yeah, this is a good time to ask the bartender a question. Uh, you always want to have good manners and conduct yourself well in, uh, you know, professional establishment when you're when you're having cocktails there, you know, out, not at your own house. But it is certainly akin to going to the library and looking up something in the reference section because bartenders are a really good encyclopedia of knowledge. And to piggyback onto that, and this is one of the things that I've noticed, um, Eric can tell you, I've been a pretty transient person over the last year or two, um, and it's kind of my nature, is 
we don't advocate drinking alone if it's a bad experience and you're doing it to forget at your own home. But there is nothing wrong with being the person who's sitting in their own stool at the bar. I used to travel a lot for work. Now I'm living in a city that I've never been to before. And before that, I moved to a city I had been to once. You find your spots. There's nothing wrong with going to a bar with a book if that's your thing. You know, I don't. I think you get a lot of stigma about being that about thinking that you're that weird dude sitting in the booth in the corner. But you know, that's that's your business and your business alone. It's good to you know have the opportunity to interact with strangers, and I think a great stranger is a friendly bartender. Absolutely. Moral of the story: hit up your local bartender, and uh, before you ask them a question, maybe order a drink and see if they give you a good one. That's that's a pretty good litmus test of whether you should be asking that person some questions. So, Ethan, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Um, how will people be able to get in touch with you if they want to, uh, you know, either send an email or hit you up on social media? So I think the best ways to do this would be if, you know, you want to go with the personal handles. The one I will give out is my Instagram, which is Ethan J. Hall, all one word. It's my middle initial as well as my first and last name. Um, If you want to get in touch with Modern Barkhart or see what we're up to, um, at Modern Barkhart is our handle. And you can always email us at podcast at modernbarkhart.com. Right. And if you have any questions for Ethan in particular, um, you know, I will make sure to forward those directly to him and we'll make sure that we get you a direct answer. You know, so feel free to use the podcast at modernbarcart.com as his email address. If you have a specific question about David Bowie, Egyptian hotel bars or otherwise. So Ethan, thanks for being on the show. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. I just want to remind you that this episode might be over, but the journey and the discussion are just beginning. If you're excited about the content in this or any other episode, please tell us. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Bar Cart for recipes and great product tips, or stalk me personally at Quixologist. That's Q-U-I-X-ologist. You can also like us on Facebook by searching Modern Bar Cart or hit us up directly via email by sending a note to podcast at modernbarcart.com. That email address, by the way, is also the one that you should use if you've got any cocktail or home bartending related questions you'd like us to address, or if you think you have a unique perspective on the cocktail world and would like to be interviewed for all to hear. I'll see you next time, but until then, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.